Good evening. All right. Um, Once you turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. And we'll be starting in verse 11. While you're turning there, AJ, um, before service, he came up and shared with me um, that he had watched a video by Tom Hughes uh, with Hope for Our Times. We've talked about him quite a bit. Um, He does a lot of prophecy updates. He's a pastor of uh, 412 Church in San Jacinto. Jacinto, if I'm saying that right, down in California. Um, And uh, I guess this is something he's been watching since 2018. And then with all kind of the COVID stuff and everything that went on, it kind of went off of people's radars. But um, he was sent a a note from one of his uh, viewers on his um, website telling him to check into this again. But apparently, April 2023... Just in time for Passover next year, they're planning on opening a train that will travel from Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv direct to Jerusalem to the Temple Mount that's meant to bring people there. And now um, this is a, a big thing. Obviously, they've been talking about doing it for a while. It's an infrastructure thing. They're building a whole brand new terminal there um, at the Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel in Tel Aviv, and then, uh, but they're also doing a whole brand new uh, rail line going there. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is back in 2018, when they were letting the Jerusalem residents know about this, they were handing out brochures that showed uh, depictions of religious Jews riding on a train carrying vegetables and animals and things that they would take to go and sacrifice with a depiction of a temple on this brochure. And what they're saying is that this rail is going to be, this uh, rail line is going to be critical for uh, having a a direct route for all the nations of the world to come and worship and pray at a temple in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. Um, That's going to be a house of prayer for all nations, like the Bible says Israel is supposed to be um, and the Lord's house is supposed to be. Um, and uh, it's uh, this is exciting, you guys. Um, there's other things going on. Tom talked a little bit about as well. Um, but uh, this is, uh, you know... Just another one of those things that's leading up to what we see in the Bible about the end times. Like we talked about last week, um, having a temple rebuilt in Israel is a a crucial part of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy that we read. Because all the things that the Antichrist does when it comes to in Jerusalem uh, requires a temple. It requires the temple to be built for him to set up an image of himself to be worshipped on a wing of the temple, the, the sacrifices that will be there, all of these other things require a temple to be built. And this is one more thing where we see with a non-religious group, because this is not the, the Temple Institute, this is not a group of Orthodox Jews doing this, this is the Jerusalem municipality and the government in Israel talking about having a house of prayer for all nations soon and this railway being an important piece of that. So Jesus is coming back soon, you guys. This is really cool, really neat stuff. So, all right, to our text, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Before we go, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can read the headlines, we can see all these things beginning to take place, these little pieces that we don't know necessarily how they directly or uh, fully fulfill Bible prophecy, but we know these are what this is what needs to happen, and we see the steps up to those things taking place. And it causes us who believe that you're coming soon for your church to say that, that it's even sooner than we expected, Lord. Um, and, and we are so excited for you to come, Lord. We pray as we study your word, as we have that in our heart and our minds, as it just dovetails with what we're looking at tonight. I pray that we would not get concerned or worried, Lord, but that we would have hope stirred up in us knowing that our King is coming, Lord, that you are coming soon. And I pray that as we study this text, Lord, you would speak to us by your Spirit. You would open these things to our hearts and our minds. We ask this in your name. Amen. Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So here Titus, uh, or Paul is writing to Titus, who is a a younger man in the faith, who uh, Paul had discipled to be a pastor, was sent out um, to pastor in Crete, um, and and he's writing this letter to him to encourage him on, on what to do as a pastor there. He's telling him in the first part of this epistle to raise up elders, um, to to appoint men who are strong in the faith, who have certain qualifications to help him lead the fellowship, lead the church there. Um, and he says, he, he tells Titus how important it is for this because in that church there were uh, insubordinate people coming in, people who were talking about useless idle things, intending to deceive people. Um, There was the group of the Judaizers who were coming in and they wanted to get the uh, Gentile church to fall back under the law of the Old Testament, having to be circumcised and all of these other things. And he said, these elders need to be raised up so that they are there to watch over the people. They are there um, to... uh, uh, exhort and convict those who contradict, Paul says in in Titus here. So, And then he goes on, Paul does in writing to Titus, and then he tells Titus that these are the things that he should be teaching the men, the older men, the younger men, the older women, and the younger women, and the bondservants or or slaves in the church, um, how to live, how to act, some practical things. We don't have time to go into that, but that's the context of what we're looking at there. So he goes through all of these things, talks about you know uh, the rule in the church, talks about having right doctrine, talks about how that doctrine applies. And then he says, this is the reason why this is important, why we live lives ordered after the word of God and, and lives of righteousness. And he says, verse 11, 4, 
the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We've been doing this discipleship study. We've been off uh, a few weeks because of different things. So, But being back into it, remember we're looking at what does true discipleship look like? What does it look like for uh, us as Christians to be disciples of Christ, to be learning from him, following him, specifically taking the teaching that we receive from him, not just into our heads, but down into our hearts and then applying it into our lives. And this um, just jumped out to me as I was preparing that this is how and why God disciples us is because of his grace. Grace, you guys know, if you're students of the word or, or even just spent any time in church or around Christians, you know, grace is, you know, the buzzword that we talk about a lot as Christians. Um, so much so sometimes that it kind of is, is lessened in its impact in our minds. Uh, I'm not going to say it's cheap, and I don't think for any of us that we think of grace as a cheap thing. But we, we can tend to kind of view it as just a, another word or something like that. When we need to, as believers, take a step back and really consider what is God's grace for us. Grace is the Greek word charis, and it, it in the... Uh, age of uh, the New Testament writers, um, Greek uh, language was the language spoken across the entire Roman Empire. Most of the known and civilized world at that time spoke this language. And, And what is beautiful is God brought this language to become this, you know, spoken uh, medium in this time for such a time as having all of these important doctrinal words for us that we have in the New Testament to be written down and explained using these things. You think of the word love in Greek. We have one word for love. For them, they have four or five different words for love. Um, and, and so it, it's it's so beautiful. That's a whole other thing. Sorry for the rabbit trail. But uh, in the Greek, grace, charis, in that time, it was thought of as being a free gift from a god or a goddess that was given uh, with no strings attached. So it had that, that understanding already in their culture, and their mindset, what they, what they thought about this word grace. Um, and and it, it carried with all those things. It was favor that's bestowed upon someone. It was unmerited. All of these other things that we see in the scriptures and what the scriptural meaning of grace is. But what was lacking in the Greek understanding of grace that we find in the New Testament is for the Greeks. This grace was given by the gods to those men and women who were their friends. Whereas for us as believers, what we see is that God's grace is given to us who are his enemies. Not just his friends, but we're his enemies. And that's what's brought into the scriptures. Is God's unmerited favor. Things that we have not in any way, shape, or form form, earned, merited, uh, done good works to receive any of those things. But he's given this to us because of his love and his grace, solely out of his nature and who he is. It's God's unmerited favor. You may have heard it before, the acronym for grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. He paid the price that we might receive God's 
riches. It's a free gift through Jesus and what he's done. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, it says, speaking of God, says he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Do you hear that? Before time began, Christ's grace, God's grace was given to us. That's the plan from uh, before time began, that we would receive this gift of his son being sacrificed on the cross for our sins. It says, uh, it was given to us in Christ Jesus before time be- began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What we didn't have in the world, what we didn't have because of sin, that we read about in Genesis 1, the sin that entered into the world that brought death and destruction, separation from God. What we didn't have was brought to us by Christ, by the Son of God coming into the world, living a perfect sinless life, and then dying on the cross on my behalf, on your behalf. And he has done that. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here where, where Paul is talking about the grace of God, it is the salvation of God. It, it does not come apart from his grace. We know we're not saved by grace. There's no works that we can do that can merit God's favor or our salvation. Grace is unearned, undeserved. Nothing that we do can earn it. The way we come to salvation is simply by faith in God's finished work through Christ. It's believing in him. Remember what it says. If you confess with your mouth, agreeing with God, um, that Jesus is Lord, and and believe in your heart, then you'll be saved, is what the scriptures say. Um, And that is the work of faith of us receiving God's grace. Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We know these things. These are basic, but it's good for us to be reminded of it. Uh, this grace is, is the offer of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, on our behalf. Uh, and it, it's by faith we receive it, and it's by faith in God's grace and by, by taking hold of his grace, this gift that we can't uh, do anything to earn that produces the fruit in our hearts and our lives. We need to be so important now that we've been saved that we don't put the cart before the horse. Remember Paul in Galatians 3, he's writing to the Galatians who, who had received the gospel. They had heard this message of grace, salvation by uh, faith or by grace through faith um, and yet they had allowed the same groups of people that were coming into the church in Crete that Titus was raising up men to help um, be uh, convicting and exhorting against these things that they had allowed these things into their church and, and they began to leave off the, the gift of gra- the grace of God in their salvation and to go after good works 
in, in thinking that that is how they have to merit their salvation. And he writes Galatians 3.1, it says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, as being the sacrifice on the cross in the past tense, that he did this work already for you. He's the sacrifice that paid for our sins. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is they received the Spirit, the regenerating, life-giving, saving Spirit of God by the hearing of faith, not by law. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He says, we need to have that understanding that we've been saved, number one, by grace. It's his work that he's done. We don't earn it. We've done nothing to deserve it. He's given it to us freely and we receive it by faith. But we also have to understand that that's how we continue in our lives as Christians is walking by faith, understanding that it's God's grace not just for this moment of salvation where I say the prayer where I'm confessing and agreeing with the Lord that I'm a sinner in need of salvation, that he paid the price for my sins. Not just that moment, but it's a day-by-day decision to walk with God that he has done these things for us. He has paid the price. He is the one who died on the cross for us and is calling us to walk after him in newness of life, no longer in the old things of our flesh, to not attempt to please God through our works, but but to have this understanding that the works come as just the fruit, as the after effect of our walking with him in an understanding of his grace and faith. That we cannot make our flesh perfect by works. We cannot do that. That There's the spiritual law that our flesh is dead. It's corrupt. It's sinful. We cannot make it any better than it is. What we do is we live our lives as believers, understanding that our flesh has been put to death on the cross with Christ, where we're no longer slaves to sin, where we present our members not as slaves to sin, but as slaves to righteousness, where we walk by faith in the Lord and walking in obedience to him, not to perfect the flesh, but to crucify, to put to death the flesh, to reckon our old man to be dead to sin is what we're told to. Um, and, And this is what God's given. So it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now this of course, it flies in the face of this hyper-Calvinism that we see and hear about today. Not so much anymore, um, a little bit still, but this idea that, that God came to save just a small group of people. But no, this, this salvation, he appeared to all men. And the salvation is a, a gift. That's what we have in John 3.16, right? Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever, it says, but he's appeared to all men. Romans 3.21, uh, uh, it's a, this is actually, I believe, verse 25. It says, uh, we've been justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, meaning the payment of a blood debt, the propitiation by his blood through faith. And this is the reason why, to demonstrate his righteousness. When you read in Romans, you read about the righteousness that the Jews attempted to have in coming to God. Now, God had established this, uh, uh, the sacrifices, the whole sacrificial system that we read about in the Old Testament. And, and, and he had set these things up as foreshadowing and, and, and pointing forward to Christ and his coming and a reminder for them that sin produces death um, and all of these things. Um, but but uh, the Jews had taken it in Jesus' days to the point where, where they were saying that all of these rituals and rites and rules could produce perfection in their flesh so that they could then please God and go to heaven. And that's what you see with the Pharisees, where they down to these tiniest things of straining their drinks so they didn't have a tiny little gnat in it and to tithing these tiny little lumps of, of seeds from their herb garden on their windowsill that they're measuring out so they have ten tiny little mustard seeds and, and they give one to God and all of these other things that they were doing with this idea that they're going to please God through all of these acts and perfect their flesh to come to that. And, and Paul in Romans, he says, they were ignorant of God's righteousness because when, when we step back and we read what the scriptures say about God, when we understand God's righteousness, we say, there's no way we can please God. That's why Paul, he talks about in the book of Romans, that if we break, I think it's the book of Romans, but he, he talks about in the New Testament, if we break one part of the law, we break all of it. If we're, if we're failing in one little aspect of it, we're failing in all of it. God is perfect. Therefore, there's no level of righteousness with God. You're either right Righteous or you're wrong, not righteous. And that's how God views everything. And so in him sending his son Christ to die on the cross on our behalf, he's demonstrating his righteousness. It's beautiful in that he's become the just, both just and the justifier of people, the Bible says. That, that he remains just and holy and righteous and pure and, and on the throne above uh, the sinful world and separate from it, apart and holy. And yet he's able to justify freely us who are sinful, his enemies deserving of death and, and, and not only having inherited that sin nature, but, but acting upon that sin nature in our lives. And he's, he's made that, that sacrifice so that he can prove his righteousness on our behalf. So we need to have that understanding that grace is God's plan of salvation by his mercy and not our works. And that's how we walk as believers, as his disciples. We walk in that. We need to ask ourselves, of course, first and foremost, am I saved? Have I truly received the free gift of God in salvation? And then we need to ask ourselves, how do we know? How are we walking in that grace? How do we know that he's been saved? Do I have assurance of salvation? The Lord says he's given us his spirit as a testimony of his work in our lives. He, he, he's promised us 
in his word that if we believe he's saved us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's, a, it's an act of faith, believing that God's grace is for us. And it's that, that understanding. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And then we need to ask ourselves, and I, th- I would encourage us as we go home tonight and maybe throughout the week, have we meditated lately on the implications of his grace in, my li- in our lives? Have we thought truly about what has he done for us? Have we gone back to see what has the Lord saved me from in my old life? Those things that I walked in in my sin. Maybe it's not just my old life, but what are the things that I fall short in so many times daily that he's forgiven me for? What are the beautiful riches and blessings he's given us, right? Because of sin and our sin nature, our very existence is on the line where we deserve death with God because of his righteousness. And yet because of his grace and his long suffering, he allows us in his forbearance to continue to exist, to have this opportunity to come to him by faith and to receive his grace our, our lives, very, our very lives, moment by moment, every breath that we breathe is a gift of God's grace to us. Everything that we have is a gift of his grace. When we step back and we understand that and we let that sink into our hearts and our minds, then we have this attitude of being grateful to the Lord for what he's done, worshiping him and, and, and understanding. And it's that understanding that that mindset that that heart attitude that then teaches us and and encourages us and and gives us the peace of God that passes understanding that that uh, produces maturity and good fruits in our lives as we understand that and as we walk in his grace and that's why Paul Writing to Titus, verse 12, he says then, uh, teaching us this grace of God that's appeared, that brings salvation, that's appeared to all men, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Are you struggling? Are you trying to have victory over a sin in your life? Or are you trying to just grow in your relationship? Are you doing it? Is a work of the flesh? Or are you walking by faith, believing in the Lord? Because when it's by faith, believing in the Lord and his power and trusting in his spirit, then, again, you have the, the attitude of, of gratitude towards the Lord, but also of humility, knowing I can't do anything to please the Lord, but I'm, I'm doing this just out of thankfulness to him, following him. And it teaches us. That word teach in the Greek, it means to instruct, to train, and can also be used to to discipline a child. And that's that same idea. So there's this beautiful, uh, uh, wonderful aspect of it with the positive side of the riches that he's given us. But also this grace has this discipline side of it. Because then we see what we have not done to deserve God's grace. Or all the things that we've done in opposition to God's grace where the Lord says, this is what I've done. My son has died on the cross on your behalf. That understanding of his sacrifice for our sins, that, that disciplines us as a child. 
God's grace teaches us. We're to be rooted in it. Uh, We don't need to live righteous lives for our justification, for our self-promotion, for our pleasure. But we live righteous lives out of gratitude for his free gift. Again, we need to ask ourselves, am I being taught by his grace? Am I growing in it? Am I walking in his grace? Have I received it and now I'm, I'm choosing to step forward in the things that he's given me? Are you stuck because of maybe sin in your life? Doubts. Other things that, that are uh, ensnaring you or perhaps stumbling you. The beautiful thing, again, is that it's the Lord that has done so many good things for us. And all of it's in his work on the cross on our behalf. We step back and we say, it's not me. It's not what I've done. And that means that then uh, it's not by my strength that I have victory. It's by his strength. I say, Lord, you've called me to repent of this sin. So I repent of it. I'm turning away from it. 180 degrees away. Lord, you've called me to follow after you. I'm going to follow after you. Lord, I don't have the strength to do this, but you've given me your spirit, and I'm going to walk by your strength and to walk daily. That's why we're taught that that, uh, the righteous man, when he falls, he gets up over and over and over again. That we're taught that his mercy is new every morning. We're taught that his grace abounds more than our sin. That, that, that his righteousness is something that, again, we cannot attain to, but he's freely given it to us if we're trusting in him and choosing to uh, believe him for it. Now we follow him and we walk after him. And he teaches us to now, here's our part, deny ungodliness to deny it. We, we do have a part here. Now it's not to earn this grace, but it's we've received this grace. Now we're told to deny these things, to deny ungodliness. That's a lack of piety or reverence or fear towards God. God's given us his grace to teach us to fear him. That's part of that discipline. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 18. If you read the book of Hebrews, it's all about how Christ is better. Better than the angels, better than the sacrifices, better than the things in the Old Testament, uh, and and is the better gift uh, of God, better than the high priest. He's better. He's accomplished greater, and and all the things that were just shadows and, and... Uh, weak illustrations and and foreshadowing, all of those other things, Christ is better. And he's brought them in for us so that if we receive, accept, embrace Christ and what he's done, we're embracing the better things. Again, it's about his grace. But verse 18, it says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. Now he's, he's reminding the readers to Mount Sinai in the wilderness where the, the Israelites, after having fled from Egypt, being saved by the Lord out of Egypt, and wandering in the wilderness, going to Mount Sinai, and the Lord there on the mountain tells them to take off their sandals, that no unclean 
thing can touch it, that, that if something unclean touches it, that it will die. And this fearful demonstration of the Lord, remember after the Lord revealed himself to the camp of Israel in the cloud and the thunderings and the lightning and his voice and the loud noises and all of those things that, that they were afraid. And that's what he says. It says, you've not come to this mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and a blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. That was the presence of God in a small demonstration to them, but a demonstration of God's presence to them. And they were terrified. He says, we haven't come to that mountain. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, the, the, the mountain of righteousness, of God's grace, where he paid the price for our sins. And to the city of the living God, the God that we can approach that we can be in his presence. The heavenly Jerusalem, a place for us that's a permanent place that does not pass away, that's incorruptible, undefiled, a place that we have as an inheritance. To an innumerable company of angels, where now, for the most part, we seem to just experience the demonic oppression in our lives. I think of my own life, I... I, I can't look back. I'm sure the Lord has done this for me and done this for all of us. But I can say more often with more sincerity and understanding that I've experienced demonic oppression in my life. But I haven't seen that I know of this angelic aid from the Lord. I know the Lord has worked on my behalf. But to be there and to see that the Lord's hosts are greater than all of these other things that we experience in this world. To be there it says we've come to this innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, the gathering of Christ who are registered in heaven. We've come to God who's the judge of all to the spirits of just men made perfect. Again, it's God's work. And finally to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We, we've come to this place. And he says, uh, because of this, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. We have this, this call now. Our responsibility is to be obedient to the Lord. It says, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven, speaking of the end times. He says, now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, and that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And then he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Let us have these free gifts that God's given to us by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence, fear, and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. That's what we're called to. We're called to deny ungodliness. 
we're to have a fear of God in that he's given us these beautiful gifts. He paid the price on our behalf. He's God who is holy and just and righteous. We've done nothing to deserve the gifts he's given us. And he's called us to walk with him in fear and reverence. Where it has this purifying effect on our lives. Grace, His grace teaches us to fear him. That we're to deny ungodliness. We're to not live in rebellion to him. But to walk with him. To fear God. To say, I have liberty for all things, but I fear that this is not what God has for me. I'm fearing to, um, to uh, displease God with my actions, to grieve his spirit. To, not that I lose my salvation, but that I am not being pleasing in my life towards him. To have that understanding. To now where it's because of his grace we're being taught to deny these things. To, to separate from them. The other part here is to deny uh, worldly lusts. That uh, worldly lust speaks of passionate desires that are according to the character of this age and its rule. Remember Paul, he writes about that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers uh, of the air and all of these uh, uh, supernatural, evil supernatural entities that, that is Satan's system for ruling the world that we live in. And, and that whole system is what Paul is talking about here. Um, with this worldly lusts. It's everything that's in the world. The, the flesh, uh, the world, and Satan. And his established rule. And all of the things, the spirit of the age. All of these things that are in the culture, society around us. That we're to deny those things. The passionate desires. That word uh, worldly is cosmos. It's that world system of evil of which Satan is the head. The fallen angels and the demons are his emissaries and all the unsaved are his servants together with the pleasures, pursuits, practices, and purposes of the individuals involved. That's the world we live in. And we're to deny what the world says. Remember, uh, we're told in Romans again to not be conformed to the image of this world, but to be transformed. And we're to not fit into the image of this world. The church today is failing at that, where the church is seeking to fit in, to be pressed into the mold of the world, to, to look like, to sound like, to follow along with all of these other things when that's the opposite of what the meaning of church is. Church, ecclesia, called out is what we're called to, to be separate, to be holy. We're to deny these things because of God's grace. The world has always been an enemy of the believer, always, has always been our enemy. It's becoming even more so now. And we need to understand that God has given us his grace in order to resist the temptation, the pressures, all of these other things, to fall into that, to go after those things. When we take our eyes off the Lord, then we begin to consider all of these things around us and they become uh, a focus in our lives. Maybe it's not even that you're, you're wanting to go after these things, but it, it drives you with fear of those things instead of fear of God and saying, I'm going to follow him where you get caught up and stumbled by all of that, but we're to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lusts. So the things that we're to negate 
to, to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust, but then the things that we should say yes to, where he says we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Soberly, righteously, godly. Romans 2.4 says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? His kindness, his grace leads us to deny those things. And that's what repentance is, to deny those things and then to go forward the other direction. So having denied those, then we live soberly, righteously, and godly. Soberly, it means uh, to have a sound mind to be temperate, to not be led astray by all these other things, the false doctrines, the false teachings, the spirit of the age, the, the entrapments of, of even our own flesh, of Satan. First Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Speaking of wearing the robes that men would wear in that time uh, and in order to do work or to run or, or to work hard, rather than having these big flowing cloths around them, they would, they would pull the cloth up between their legs and stuff it into their belt and tie it up so it was out of the way, roll up your sleeves, so to say, and then they would get to work. And, and that's what we're called to as believers with our minds, to gird up the loins of our minds, to not be so spread out and concerned and worried with all these other things around us and the things that the world is pressing in on us. But we're to be single-minded of this, says rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's looking forward to the prize. Right? We see the things around us. We hear things like this is a neat news that we heard about the train and all of these things. Um, because we see it's a sign of the times, but we hear all these other signs of the times that are terrible, where we hear about inflation rising, the continuance of the wars across the world, uh, earthquakes, uh, these fires even that we had here, all of these other things that we see, is creation groaning, is the birth pains that we see, the, the early warning signs of the Lord's coming, and, and, and all of these things, we're to understand them, and to know that they're pointing to Christ, but to have, to not have this focus of fear and, and, and um, being distracted by these things, but to gird up our loins, uh, the loins of our mind, and to be sober, to have a sound mind, to be temperate, to not be taken in with fear, to not be, uh, the other side of that is intoxicated, right? To not have that. There's the, 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 our culture and our society is, is obsessed with medicating themselves. And it's not just illegal drugs, recreational drugs, but it's prescription over-the-counter drugs. It, it, it's obsessed with anything that they can do to limit the effects of sin in our lives. Now, there, there's, I'm not... Speaking against medicine, we're not Jehovah's Witnesses or you know these other groups that say you can't use medicine at all. But what I'm saying is that uh, many times what people are receiving uh, in, in uh, the world, in their flesh, may not be directly because they did some sort of sin, like you know the Pharisees accused. Uh, this, the blind men in the New Testament that the Lord healed, 
Um, but all of these things where we suffer, where we go through physical ailments, where we go through these things, the Lord wants to use that in our lives to point us. Many times it's a person in deep sickness or some, some illness on their deathbed that the Lord is finally able to reach their hearts. And uh, our world says, oh, deny all that pain, all these other things, just medicate it up, be, be numbed out and you know, let it slide by when the Lord wants to use those things many times to get our attention, to get people's attentions. So we, we as believers, we need to not, uh, on this other aspect of it, to not be playing around with things that, that are distracting, that give us uh, intoxicated minds, intoxicated understanding. Uh, but we're to live soberly. There's the, the, the mental aspect, but there's the physical aspect as well to embrace this uh, a, a sober lifestyle where we're saying the Lord's coming back. He did this work for me. He's called me to live righteous. I'm going to follow him and to not allow these other things into my life, to be sober-minded, to live soberly because we have this hope that we can rest upon and, and rest fully upon it of God's grace that will be brought to us at his revelation, where we'll have our new bodies. We have the rewards that we're going to receive. So he's called us, uh, grace teaches us to live righteously. That goes without explanation, without saying to live righteously, the right way. And godly in this present age, we're to live how the Lord wants our lives ordered, to live that way. That's how God's grace teaches us. The word this present age is the Greek aeon, um, which speaks of similar to cosmos, but it speaks of the entire atmosphere of the world that we live in and move in. Um, the, in uh, German philosophy, they came up with the word zeitgeist. You've probably heard that word, the spirit of this age. And that's similar to the meaning in this Greek word. Um, it, it's the spiritual, moral, mental, emotional, physical, temporal, cultural, societal, philosophical spirit of the age that we live in. We're in this age. We're in this world. We move in this. And, and it's uh, a noxious atmosphere to the child of God that we live in. It, it's, it's like uh, a firefighter going into a burning building with no protective gear on whatsoever, no respirator, no covering, whatever. That's the world we live in, is a, a burning down building. And, and God's grace teaches us to live these ways, to deny those things, to put on this protective gear and to live in that, to have the supply of oxygen that we need that comes from him, to have the things for us to breathe in. That's what we're called to, to live this way now, presently, because we have this beautiful gift of God's grace that's coming for us. We have to go through these things. We have to continue in this. The Lord, in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he prayed not that we should be removed from the world, but that we would be kept safe from the world, that we would be kept from it. And that's how we are as Christians. We're not removed. We're not pulled out until the rapture happens. We're in this world. And for now, we look with our eyes on the prize and we walk with the Lord. Go back to Titus, if you're not there. Verse 13, 
it says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This blessed hope and glorious appearing, it's this one event of when our bodies will be transformed as when we see him, we'll be like him, the New Testament says, right? When, when we are raptured up to meet the Lord and our bodies are transformed, our incorruptible or our corruptible puts on incorruptible. The imperfect puts on perfect where we're, we are in our glorified bodies with him when we see him. That's what we have to look for. We're looking forward to that. And we're looking forward to his blessed Hope. This word looking means to receive to oneself, to admit, like open doors, to give access to yourself, to receive into relationship and companionship, uh, even uh, uh, intercourse, to expect, to look for, to wait for, this idea of deep intimacy, someone you've been intimately looking for, waiting for. It's similar to the anticipation of a bride who is longing to be presented to her groom on a wedding day. That's what we're called to. And looking forward to all the joys that that entail from that happening. And we're called as his bride to look for expectantly with hope for his glorious appearing and coming. The signs of the times, again, they can be uh, depressing if that's what we're focusing on. But if we have it in right aspect, right understanding, right perspective about it, then we say Jesus is coming back soon. Our King, our Savior is coming back soon. And it's, that's a beautiful thing for us. And his grace teaches us to, to then live the right way in that aspect, to be pleasing to the Lord, to, to bear fruit for him, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Um, this is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ here. It's not our great God, comma, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, but our great God and Savior, God. Christ is our God, our great God, and our Savior. In the Greek, what's interesting is that word our actually is, um, it's called a polemic term, meaning polemics were uh, this kind of uh, form of speech or uh, uh, rhetorics where, where you would basically criticize or call out or have opposition. It was like debate, debate team. That's what polemics were. And that word our is actually a a polemic term where he's saying this age has its own ruler. This world that we live in has all of these things that are fighting against us. But we're looking for our great God and Savior. There's a God of this age, a God of this world, but we have our great God and Savior that we're looking for. It's in opposition to all of these things that we see around us, which should cause us to say, amen, Lord, come quickly, come quickly, because all the things we see around us are, are uh, death, destruction, the effects of sin on the world and rebellion against God. God's grace, what he's done for us, teaches us to look for him, to be expectant for him, and to understand, verse 14, that he who gave himself for us He gave himself for us that he might redeem us 
from every lawless deed, to pay the price for our sins, to ransom us, to pay a debt we cannot pay. And he has done that to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's in the past tense. He's done it on the cross. And to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. See, God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts, to live actively sober, righteous, godly lives in this dying world in opposition to us and enemy of the people of God, looking for the beautiful, blessed hope that we have coming. And his grace, because of all of these things, purifies us for himself, sanctifies us. And that's what he's doing for us. Grace teaches us to allow truth in the inward parts, like Psalm 51, 6 says. Remember David, his psalm there, he's praying in repentance after having not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but, but seeking to cover it up. Um, lying about it, uh, and then ultimately murdering her husband um, and being called on those things. His, his psalm, 51, is his psalm, his prayer of repentance. And what does he say? You desire truth in the inward parts. The seeking down in our heart and our souls, those areas that we've not allowed the Lord to have, the throne in our lives, to have his truth sink into those inward parts and to permeate our lives and to allow the Holy Spirit to perform his sanctifying work in us. That's what his grace does for us and teaches us to understand he's paid the price for our sins. He's already forgiven us for these things. He wants us to surrender them to him, to walk in newness of life, to be sanctified, set apart, pulled out from this world. First John 3, it says, Beloved, now... We are children of God. Now we are children of God, it says. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like when we're transformed. It says, but we do know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him. Now it's not in him, me, in him, this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's what we're called to, to have that hope, to allow the Lord to work in our hearts and our lives. And when we do that, then he purifies, sets us apart to be his own special people, zealous for good works. The old King James says peculiar people. Many people took that to mean the wrong things and wanted to, you know, they would have excuses for acting weird and strange as Christians say, well, God's called us to be peculiar people. But that's not what it's talking about at all. The Lord has called us out to be peculiar because we're, we're not citizens of this world. We're, we're, we're people that uh, have the hope of God within us in a world that's dying without hope. We, we are people that have a zeal for being obedient to the Lord and good works. Before, in our culture and society, we kind of lived in this 
lukewarm culture that had aspects of morality and goodness and righteousness because our nation was, for the most part, founded on, on biblical values and had, we had kind of this culture of morals. Uh, but more and more as we see the world around us going after uh, the flesh and falling into this Romans 1 society and mindset, uh, we are becoming or should be becoming more and more strange in that we're staying the course in following and having zeal for the good things that God's called us to. And those good things become, have more and more contrast to what the world wants and what the world is going after. And that's what we're called to, to be purified by the Lord in, in understanding and in walking in and in receiving his grace and to respond to him, to be taught by him, to be discipled by him. And we're his own special people, zealous for good works. We have a heart now for following the Lord, where he's created in us a clean heart, like David again in the Psalms writes about. He's restored a right spirit in us because of the work that he's done in us. We need to search our hearts. We need to ask the Lord uh, if there are areas in our lives that we've held back, that we aren't walking with him. We need to look at the cross and the things that he's done for us. And we need to remember the price he paid for us. When we do that, we receive that. And then we look forward to the beautiful gifts that he's given us. That teaches us to live how we should live as his disciples. And to walk with him. um, And to look forward to him. This doesn't necessarily have to do with the text. But turn with me to Job. Um, And then we'll finish up here. Job, you remember Job. He lived... As a righteous man in the world, but he lived in a world, it's his direct world, that was falling apart around him because of Satan. And, and the Lord allowing these things into Job's life um, to test him. And, and in that world, in, in this life that he was living where he was being tested, we see Job continue to have faith in God's grace. He understood it's not all of these other things that I've done. Look at verse 25. Actually, jump up to verse 23. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. And get this, this, you know, many people believe Job's the oldest written book in the Bible. Not that it speaks of things older than the book of Genesis, but that it was the first one written down says that they were, uh, he says, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. He says, how my heart yearns within me. That's what the Lord has called us to have, that understanding, that mindset, that understanding God has redeemed us. And we see not a cross with Christ hanging on it any longer, but an empty cross, an empty tomb. We, we see the testimony of the gospel writers that he was risen from the dead. They touched the wounds in his hands, his side. They saw the scars on him. They ate with him. They spoke with him. They walked with him. They saw him ascend into heaven. 
there's the proof that his work on the cross satisfied our debt of sin. There's proof. And he is our redeemer if we trust in him. And we could say like Job, I know that my redeemer lives. I know it. And he shall stand at last on the earth. He's coming back to the earth. That's what we look forward to. It says, and if my skin is destroyed, if my body is burnt up, eaten by worms, rotted in the ground, if my skin is destroyed, he says, this I know. In my flesh I'll see God. I'm trusting in the Lord for resurrection. That's what we have. It says, I'm going to see him for myself. It's not some distant thing that I'm just hoping for one day to kind of have. Oh, God is my redeemer and he was resurrected like we see now. But we're going to see him personally, physically, presently with him. And we can yearn for him. And when we do that, then we just follow after him and we're his disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a people with the right mindset, knowing that there's nothing we can do to merit our salvation, knowing that you've called us to good works because of your grace, and that if we simply hold on to your grace and be obedient to what you've called us to in your word, walking by the strength and power of your spirit, it will be pleasing to you in our lives because you are already pleased in your beloved son. You're already satisfied by his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. He's seated at your right hand now, Lord. We thank you for your work. I pray that we would embrace that, that we would trust you. If we have doubts, if we're lacking the assurance of our salvation, that we would consider maybe there are things in our heart and our lives that you are convicting us of, that are causing us to doubt our salvation. And rather than sitting and saying, I don't know if I'm saved, say, Lord, save me from these things, that we would repent, we would walk forward in newness of life. If there are things that are causing us to doubt you, that we would fall back on what you've done for us. We have the sure word of your testimony of these things. You're a God of love, grace, and mercy, Lord. You're a God who's just, holy, righteous, but you dealt with our sin that separated us by your son on the cross. And we can receive that by simply believing in our hearts, confessing with our mouths, Lord. And I pray that we would live that daily in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.